In our series in the book of Judges, through the book of Judges, we come this morning to Judges chapter 6. And I'd like to read that for us this morning. Judges chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camel, camels. They invited the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if I, now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God in the top, on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. 
In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar, demolished, with the Asher pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jeroboam that day, saying, Let Baal contend with him. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wolf fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we do week by week, we come to your word with anticipation because we know in your word you speak to us. You speak to us through your word and through your spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would bring a word for each person here today and help us, Lord, to have open ears and receptive hearts. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world desperately in need of grace. Mark Twain used to say that he put a dog and a cat in a cage together as an experiment to see if they could get along, and they did. So he put a bird and a pig and a goat in, and they got along fine with a few adjustments. And then he put a Baptist, Presbyterian, and a Catholic in, <laughs> and soon there was not a living thing left. We can think of certain combinations of people where put them in a room and there would not be a living thing left. Maybe it's certain combinations of our family members. Perhaps it's certain political people that we put in the same room together and that there would not be a living thing left. It seems we have lost the ability to disagree civilly, to show grace to people with whom we differ. We live in a world desperately in need of grace. Lewis Smeads, who used to be a professor of psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary, wrote a book on shame and grace, and in that book he said this, Guilt was not my problem as I felt it. What I most felt was a glob of unworthiness that I could not tie down to any concrete sins I was guilty of. What I needed more than pardon was a sense that God accepted me, owned me, held me, affirmed me, and would never let go of me, even if he was not too much impressed with what he had on his hands. Guilt says I've done something wrong. Shame says I am wrong. There's something wrong with me. Lewis Smith identifies three common sources of crippling shame. 
Secular culture, graceless religion, and unaccepting parents. Secular culture tells us that we must look good, feel good, make good, and in a thousand ways we don't measure up and we feel ashamed. Graceless religion, Smead says, tells us that we must follow the letter of the law. And if we fail, we will face eternal rejection. It's, it's also called legalism. There's a set of rules, and if you don't keep the rules, there are eternal consequences, and we feel shame. And then there's unaccepting parents, those parents whom you can never please. When you get a B, it's, why did you get an A? And when you get an A, it's, why didn't you get an A+. No matter what you do, you always get, seem to get the frown of disapproval. We experience crippling shame, and we're desperately in need of grace. Grace is undeserved goodness and kindness. Grace says, I know who you are, and I still love you. Grace says, I know you've, what you've done, and I still accept you. In Judges 6, Israel is in desperate need of grace. Our account begins in a familiar way. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and it's part of this spiritual pattern in the book of Judges of God's people turning away from him and turning to other gods. They do evil in the sight of God, and God responds with discipline by handing over his people to their enemies. And in Judges 6, it's handing them over to the Midianites for seven years. In Judges 6, Israel experiences the worst oppression and suffering yet. It's worse than the 900 iron chariots of Sisera, if you were here last week. Because the Midianites absolutely lay waste to the land. Whenever, and I underscore that word whenever, whenever the Israelites plant their crops, the Midianites sweep through like a swarm of locusts and destroy everything in sight. They destroy the sheep and the cattle and the donkeys, all representing all of Israel's economic resources. They're all, they wipe them all out such that the Israelites are forced to flee their homes and take refuge in mountain caves. I mean, think about that. Life couldn't be worse for the Israelites. Verse 6 says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites, literally laid them so low, that they cry out to the Lord for help. They are in desperate need for grace. God hears their cries and interestingly sends them a prophet before he sends them a deliverer. Before he can rescue them, they need to understand. And so the prophet says in verse 8, to the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. In a nutshell, God says to his people, I showed you grace upon grace repeatedly. And yet you have not listened to me. And if you didn't read the chapter along with me just a moment ago, you, if I said, well, what comes next? You might think it's a word of judgment. I mean, that's what happens in Jeremiah 25. God says the same thing to his people. You've not listened to me. And the next word is a word of judgment. God would be completely justified in judging his people for their repeated rebellion against him. And yet, in Judges 6, God shows grace. God shows grace to rebels and doubters. And what these first 10 verses in this chapter show us is that we cannot presume on God's grace. We can't think like when we're, when we're like deep in our own waywardness and rebellion, all we need to do is cry out to God and he'll automatically come to the rescue. 
That, we can't demand grace. It's not automatic. Grace is undeserved uh, goodness and kindness. We can't demand grace. And yet, in Judges 6, God shows grace to rebels and doubters. What I'd like to do this morning is point out three gracious actions of God in this chapter. There is a call of God, there's a charge from God, and there's a confirmation from God. There's a call, there's a charge, and there's a confirmation all by grace. Let's look at these three things together. First, there is God's call. Beginning in verse 11, God calls a deliverer to rescue Israel from the Midianites. And I would say to you, this is grace. God is preparing a deliverer before the Israelites have even repented. And I put it this way, God demonstrates his love toward Israel in this. While they were yet sinners, God raised up a deliverer. God in his grace raised up a deliverer, as we're going to see, and in his grace... He calls a very unlikely deliverer. We're introduced to, uh, to Gideon in this chapter, who is threshing wheat in a wine press, which is curious, because that's not where you thresh wheat. A wine press is a straw, a, a stone uh, area where you uh, press the grapes. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press because he's scared. He's hiding. He's hiding from the Midianites. Gideon, as we're learning, is not hero material. Uh, he himself says, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in the clan. If you were to take a poll in that day of all the Israelites, of the 50 most likely Israelite men to serve as a deliverer, Gideon would not be, have been on that list. But the angel of the Lord goes to him and says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And I would suggest to you, it's kind of like going to the weakest player on the team and saying, hey, superstar. I mean, I, I wonder if Gideon laughed when he heard this. I wonder if when he heard these words, he looked around and said, like, I, I, are you talking to someone else? And when he realized the angel was talking to him, I wonder if he said to himself, you, you got to be kidding me. They must be mistaking me for someone else. But my friends, God is not mistaken. And he's not speaking sarcastically. He's identifying Gideon in terms of who he will make him by grace. He will make Gideon a mighty warrior who delivers Israel. Gideon hears this, and he has questions. He's got two objections to God. The first one is verse 13. If the Lord is with us, why has all this suffering happened to us? Where are all the wonders that we've heard about that he's done for his people? The Lord must have abandoned us. We have this objection. God, why are all these bad things happening to me? Where are you? Why are you letting all this happen? Gideon has this objection, and, and in this objection, he's assuming some things I just want to make explicit. He's assuming that the people don't deserve what's happening, and he's demonstrating his ignorance of their spiritual state. And the people have done evil. They've turned away from the Lord, and they're facing the consequences of their disobedience. Gideon is, is also assuming that when bad things happen, it means that God has abandoned his people. But we know, as the reader, God has not abandoned his people. He's disciplining his people. And by turning them over to their enemies, he's teaching them the folly of idolatry and what it means to depend on him. And I think God oftentimes uses hardship and suffering in our lives to teach us the same thing, to show us the folly of idolatry and the need to depend on him. 
Unfortunately, if truth be told, we don't really depend on God until we have to, until we're in suffering and hardship. And so in suffering and hardship, maybe instead of asking God, why are you letting this happen? Maybe we should ask God, what are you teaching me through this? God's answer to Gideon's objection is, go in the strength you have and save Israel. I'm sending you. Gideon has another objection in verse 15. Okay, if you're calling me to deliver Israel, uh, uh, pardon me, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least of my clan. We also have this objection as well. God, I can't do what you're asking me to do. I can't speak in public or speak in front of all those people, or I don't have the gifts and abilities to, to lead that ministry. I can't do this. This is Gideon's, essentially, his objection. And God responds to him in verse 16 that says, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites. He says the same thing to Moses. When Moses said, I'm not eloquent enough to go before the Pharaoh, God says to Moses, I'll be with you, and I'll give you the words. He says the same, God says the same thing to Paul when he's facing opposition in Corinth for his ministry, and he's fearful. And God says to, to Paul in a dream, don't be afraid. I'll be with you. We just heard that in the New Testament reading. God's presence says the same thing to Gideon. My presence will make all the difference. In your inadequacy, I will be your adequacy. In your weakness, God says, I will be your strength. In your insufficiency, I will be your sufficiency. Here's God's call to Gideon by grace. And here's an interesting implication of this calling. I just want to point out, God in this calling is giving Gideon an identity. And I just point out, it's not an identity that he has to achieve. It's an identity that he simply receives. Gideon receives this. The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Gideon doesn't do anything. It's God's word that comes and says that to him. It's not an identity that Gideon has to create. It's an identity that he receives from God. And it's interesting, and I point it out because, of course, we're in this uh, modern debate on identity. Our modern culture tells us that we must create our own identity. We must look inside our, to our own desires and dreams to determine our identity. We, we see this all over. It's what Maria sings in The Sound of Music to go back a few years. Climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow till you find your dream. That's modern identity formation. Follow your dream. You don't have to rely on anyone else but yourself to affirm you and tell you who you are. Just pursue your own desires and dreams regardless of what anyone else thinks. But in this searching chapter on identity in his book, Making Sense of God, Tim Keller points out that we cannot get an identity merely through self-affirmation. He says it comes in a great measure from others. In the end, we can't say to ourselves... Things like, I don't care literally that everyone else in the world thinks I'm a monster. I love myself, and that's all that matters. You can't really say that. We can't convince ourselves of our own worth. And even people who say, I don't care what my community thinks, I'm going to do my own thing, aren't usually standing completely on their own. Usually, Keller points out, they have found another community who affirms them, whose approval they crave. So Tim Keller writes this, we need someone from outside to say we are of great worth. And the greater the worth of that someone or someones, the more power they have to instill a sense of self and of worth. Only if we are approved and loved by someone whom we esteem can we achieve any self-esteem. 
We are irreducibly social and relational beings. We need someone we respect to respect us. We need someone we admire to admire us. And hopefully you've experienced this at some point in your life. I mean, for example, think of how much it changes your life when there's a teacher who believes in you or a coach who believes in you or a mentor who believes in you. Even, even more than you believe in yourself, they believe in you and they say these life-giving words. What is the impact when they say to you, I see something in you. You've got this potential. You've got, I see this, this strength and this ability, and I want to help draw that out of you. My friends, that does wonders for our identity. Let me just point out, if Gideon found his identity and his feelings and his desires, he never would have been the deliverer of Israel because he tells us what his feelings are. I'm the least from the least clan, and I'm the least one in the clan. Gideon would have never been the deliverer. He, he built his identity up from his own inner feelings and desires. The reason that Gideon was able to become the deliverer of God's people was not because he achieved his identity or created it. It's because he received it from God. God gave him a sense of self and worth when he said, I am with you, mighty warrior. I wonder where we are trying to find our identity. I wonder if we're trying to achieve our identity by looking at our desires and following our dreams. And we're doing that, and yet we're struggling with these feelings of inadequacy and despair and imposter syndrome. No, how, no matter how much we tell ourselves, I'm gifted and talented, I'm gifted and talented, the self-doubt starts to creep in. Let me suggest a better and stronger foundation for our identity. It comes not in our self-affirmation and what we tell ourselves, but in divine affirmation and what God tells us. See, like Gideon, God calls us by grace. And he says to everyone in this room, I love you so much that I sent my own son to die for you. In Christ, he says to us, you are my son. You are my daughter. You are the beloved. In Christ, God says to us, I am with you and I will never leave you or forsake you. And if you put your life in my hands, I will make of you a glory and a beauty that you could never make for yourself. So I ask us again, where are we trying to find our identity? If we are seeking our identity in our own feelings and desires, I think we'll end up in fear and anxiety and insecurity. But my friends, when you hear the call of God's grace and you come to him and let him tell us who we are, that leads to a stable foundation for our identity and great hope and confidence and freedom. And we see that in Gideon. That's God's call first by grace. Secondly, there's a charge that God gives to Gideon. It's in verses 25 and 26. This, that same night the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Now in this charge from God, we learn a very interesting thing. We learn that apparently Gideon's father, Joash, taught Gideon all about the wonders that God did in the Exodus to bring his 
people out of slavery. I mean, Gideon says that in verse 13. I, I know about the wonders. God, his father must have told him. Perhaps they had family devotions every night where Gideon learned who God was and what God had done. And yet, Joash, after leading these family devotions for Gideon, we're told he also has an altar to Baal in his backyard. He's teaching his children to worship God, and yet he's modeling in his own personal life uh, worship of Baal. And I don't think that Joash is alone in this. I think he's not the only Israelite that has an altar to Baal in his backyard. This was a temptation of all of Israel as they were coming into the promised land, was worshiping the idols of, of Canaan. And they did. They fell into that. They, they worshiped the idols not instead of God, but in addition to God. They said, yeah, yeah we, worship, we worship God, and that's great. We're going to keep God, but, you know, it actually doesn't hurt to add another God, another altar, just make sure we cover our bases. And they essentially, instead of monotheists, they become polytheists. They, they like, the more gods, the better. And so the irony of this passage is that the Israelites are crying out to God for help while they have an altar to Baal in their backyard. I mean, how would you feel if your spouse asked you for help while they're having an affair on the side? I mean, that's essentially what the Israelites are doing to God. God says in the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus puts it this way, you cannot serve God and money. And so what God is asking of Gideon is for his undivided loyalty. He's asking Gideon to deal with his heart idolatry before he delivers Israel from their, their, their uh, cultural idolatry. So here's God's charge. Remove the altar to Baal and replace it with an altar to the Lord. So verse 27 tells us that Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. The altar to Baal would have been a raised stone uh, platform, and Asherah was the female counterpart to Baal, represented by a carved wood pole. And, and Gideon was called to tear these things down, take the, down the, the stone platform, tear down the, the wood pole, and replace it with a, uh, an altar to the Lord and sacrifice a bull on it. The challenging thing is, we're told, is that the Baal altar belonged to Gideon's father. So by tearing it down, he would risk the wrath of his father. Verse 27 tells us that, no surprise, Gideon does this at night because of fear of his family and the townspeople. And, and maybe this is something you can discuss over lunch today. Is What do you think of that? What do you think of the fact that Gideon did this at night out of fear? Because at the end of the day, Gideon obeys. He, he does do this. And would we even do that? Because Gideon knows that there is going to be a blowback, a serious blowback if he does this. So sure enough, the next morning, the townspeople discover this Baal, this Baal altar torn down, and they are livid. And they find out who does it, and they demand that Gideon be put to death. And it, this event showcases the spiritual condition of Israel. They are more angry about a, a Baal altar being torn down than glad about a, an altar to the Lord being raised up. And now Joash, Gideon's father, is on the horns of a dilemma. He must decide. Is he going to stand with the townspeople, many of whom were probably his friends, or with his own son? Fundamentally, is he going to stand with Baal or is he going to stand with God? And Joash stands with his son and questions the power of Baal. But Baal, why, why do we need to do this? Baal can defend himself. And interestingly, as a result, Gideon gets a new name. Gideon becomes a walking evidence of the impotence of, of Baal. 
Here's God's charge. Remove the altar to Baal and replace it with an altar to the Lord. I wonder, would God say that we have altars to Baal in our backyards? Augustine was a church father in the 4th century. We get a window into his interior spiritual life through the confessions, his spiritual autobiography. And in the chapter where he recounts how he became a Christian, he writes to God, I was an unhappy young man, wretched as at the beginning of my adolescence when I prayed to you for chastity and said, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. I was afraid you might hear my prayer quickly and that you might too rapidly heal me of the disease of lust, which I prefer to satisfy rather than suppress. Lord, make me holy, but not yet, which is a very honest thing to say. Augustine is acknowledging that he has an altar to his sexual desire in his backyard, and he tells God, I don't want you to get rid of that altar just yet. I'm not ready. I still get too much satisfaction from it. I'm not ready to get rid of it. I wonder if we have any altars to Baal in our backyard. I wonder if there's any places where we are saying, I want to be holy, but not yet. And it's that not yet that might indicate there is another altar. Because whatever makes us say to God, well, not yet, is that thing that's more important than God. I want to be a Christian, but not yet. Maybe when I'm in my 40s or 50s, I'll, I'll consider Christ. I want to serve God more in the church, but not yet. Do we have altars to Baal in our backyard? How would we identify whether we have altars to Baal? Let, let me give us some x-ray questions for us to evaluate our hearts. Perhaps you can consider where you spend your, your, your discretionary time and money. Where does all your time and money go when you don't have to spend it? Where do you spend it? And it's possible you chase that down, you might find an altar being built in your background, backyard to another god. Or perhaps more searching. What makes you livid when you lose it? See, when you lose things, I mean, it's, it's, it's normal to be disappointed, but when you're livid... Maybe there is an altar to another God there. See, when we look at the things that, we are in, that, that make us inordinately angry, look, look at those, pause for a minute, at those things that make us inordinately angry, and trace them down to their root, and you might, might find an alternate God. I'll spare you the, the details. I follow this process, looked at those places that make me inordinately angry, and I found... Lo and behold, a food idolatry and basketball idolatries. Where do we get inordinately angry? The Super Bowl is coming up next weekend. And you know, when our kids root for the same team as dad, not because they like that team, but because they don't want dad to be in a horrible mood for the rest of the day, <laughs> there might be an altar to another god. My friends, the most subtle altars that we build are to cultural gods. They're subtle because they're cultural gods. Everyone has this altar in their backyards, and that's why they're invisible to us, because everyone has them. They're in the air that we breathe. I wonder, what are the cultural gods in our area? Perhaps another thing you could discuss over lunch is, what are the cultural gods that everyone has in their life, in their backyard? I'll give you some starters. Perhaps family. 
or career or travel sports. God, I, I can't serve you. I'm too busy with blank. And since they're cultural gods, if you dare challenge them, people will be livid because they're cultural gods. Here's God's charge. Remove the altars to other gods and replace them with an altar to me. There's a call, there's a charge, and then lastly, there is a confirmation from God. Because of all his doubts, Gideon asks God to provide confirmation of his word twice in our chapter. And I'll just mention briefly, verse 17, the first one, we're not spending too much time on it, but Gideon asks for a sign that is really God speaking to him. He's not sure this angel Lord that comes. We'll talk about that in a second. He's not sure it's God. Give me evidence that it's really you speaking. God confirms that it's him. And then later in the passage, the end, there's another sign, verse 36. Gideon asks for another sign, uh, verse 36 and 37. Gideon says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wolf fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only in the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. I would suggest to you that this is not one of Gideon's finer moments. If you think about what has transpired in this chapter, God has already assured Gideon multiple times that he is with him. God has already, in the, the moment I just mentioned, consumed this meal with fire as a divine confirmation that, I, that God is really speaking to him. Verse 33, a few verses earlier, God closed Gideon with the Spirit. And all of Israel begins to follow him. There's, there's signs that God's Spirit rests on Gideon. So I would suggest that this request for a sign is less about God's assurance and more about Gideon's doubt and unbelief. And yet, graciously, God confirms this request for a sign. The fleece is wet and the ground stays dry. And Gideon sees this, and he's still filled with doubt and unbelief, and he says to himself, man, that was too easy of a sign. I should have asked for the harder one. I should ask for the fleece to stay dry and the ground to be wet. And so he goes back to God, and he says, don't be angry, I have one more request. And so Gideon knows he's already overstepping his boundaries. He knows, he's like, don't be angry with me. And God hears this, and God shows remarkable restraint and remarkable patience and grace and confirms Gideon again of his word. You know, if you've been in the church for a while, you know that Christians are tempted to put out the fleece to make decisions. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, but... It comes from, from this passage. Christians are tempted to put out the fleece in decision-making. Essentially, we ask God to provide a sign in a big decision. So like we say, if she is the one that I'm supposed to, be, to marry, if this is a job I'm supposed to take, God, just give me a sign. Give me a liver shiver. Write, write, write a message in the sky. I, I, I'll put out this fleece. But I would suggest that God, Gideon is not offered up here as an example to follow. In context of this chapter, the fleece is an expression of doubt and unbelief more than it is an expression of faith and trust. And yet God is patient and gracious. In Judges 6, the, the, the picture that he emerges is of a God who wants to do everything he can to help Gideon this fearful doubter, everything he can to help him walk in faith and obedience. He is so patient with Gideon's weakness. 
he stoops down to meet him in his struggles. My friends, perhaps you are here today in desperate need of grace. Perhaps you are in the midst of suffering and oppression unlike anything you've ever faced before. And you are saying to yourself, I need God to stoop down and meet me. I need him to strengthen me in my weakness. I need the patience and grace that I see in Judges 6. I wish God sent an angel to speak to me in, in, in my struggles and assure me. And here's the interesting thing about the angel of the Lord in this passage. It's, it's confusing who this angel is. See, on the one hand, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon as a human messenger. Right at the beginning of the chapter, he comes and sits down with Gideon, and Gideon has this conversation with him like another, another person. I don't think he knows he's speaking to God. It's an angel of the Lord looking like a human person. On the other hand, in this account of Judges 6, the, 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 the narrator switches, and no longer it's the angel of the Lord speaking. The Lord, God himself is speaking. The Lord answers. And the question is, who is the angel of the Lord? Is it a messenger sent by God, or is it the Lord himself? I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is found in the triune God, the three persons of God. I think there are hints that the angel of the Lord here, Judges 6, is nothing less than the pre-incarnate Christ. And so God has shown us his patience and grace. He has stooped down to strengthen us because he sent his own son, the incarnate Christ, to be with us, to call us by grace to charge us to total allegiance. You cannot serve God in money and to confirm God's promise and his presence. So if you doubt that God loves you, if you doubt that God is present with you, look at Jesus, the messenger he has sent. Look at the cross on which he died for you. Listen to his promise. At the end of Matthew 28, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Think about what he's doing now, sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. In Jesus Christ, there is grace for rebels and doubters. And so go to him and receive from him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a people desperately in need of grace. We live in a world desperately in need of grace. We thank you that you are the God of Judges 6, that there is grace in you for rebels and doubters. Thank you that you demonstrate your love for us in this while we're yet sinners, still rebelling against you. Christ died for us. You sent Jesus to call us, to charge us, to confirm your presence with us. Help us to receive this. For it's in his name that we pray.